This week we're taking it back to the countryside where we go down to Canterbury in the southwest of England, where local bands are creating a chilled out version of prog rock, filled with ridiculous lyrics and jazzy solos. Today we'll focus on one of the crown jewels of this scene, Caravan's 1971 album, In the Land of Grey and Pink. Hello, and welcome to a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. I am your host, Ian Prize, and today we take a detour to the Canterbury scene, a subgenre of prog odd even by prog standards, which remained a quirky underground scene even as the rest of prog rock took off. So, let us travel back in time to 1964 when the wildflowers formed in Canterbury, a mid sized cathedral town deep in the Garden of England. Formed by avant-garde jazz nerds who love beat poetry but also yearned for commercial pop success, this band never recorded an album but would have a rotating membership that would provide the start of the bands Camel, Soft Machine, and Caravan. Caravan would split off from the Wildflowers and record their self-titled debut in 1968 and their second album, If I Could Do It All Again, I'd Do It All Over You, in 1970. None of these made commercial waves but put the band on the map for the underground and university live circuit. They then went into the studio with Richard Sinclair on bass and vocals, Pi Hastings on guitar and vocals, David Sinclair on keys, and Richard Coughlin on drums. This album is filled with hummable melodies and long jammy solos, but thankfully doesn't take itself too seriously, so it was a really enjoyable listen. I can't think for the life of me when I first got Shows of Our Lives, the live compilation of Caravan, but it is end-to-end with great songs. I felt I had to pick one studio album for this podcast, and In the Land of Grand Pink is the critical favorite, but if you enjoy this album, I highly encourage you to dig deeper. Caravan is one of the most consistently delightful bands of the 70s. So today, I'm in my underwater chateau of solitude. I'm joined with Ed from his ice fortress and Mang from the Starbucks of pure evil. Thank you. <laughs> Howdy. So today we are going to talk about caravans in the land of Grand Pink, probably the critical high point of the so-called Canterbury scene. I guess I'll start with you today, Mang. What are your first thoughts about this album? I did not hear this album before, so everything I had was my first impression. They sound like a small scale band with not much complicated productions and stuff, but actually I listened to it a second time, then I can hear they're actually very thoughtfully played and performed. No, I, I completely agree. We'll, we'll talk about the kind of the scale of them relative to the big boys like Yes and King Crimson, but Ed, uh, is this your first introduction to Caravan or the Canterbury scene? How did you enjoy this album? Um, I had mixed emotions, I must say. I, I had not heard this before. Yeah, I went from being amused to kind of angry. (laughs) Angry? Okay. Yeah, I did listen to it a few times. You know, on first listening, it was, I was just taken aback by just how ridiculous the the songwriting was. But ultimately, like, what kept me listening was, yeah, some really exciting musicianship. A lot of the stuff that was played by not the band you know like the the flute that you're hearing all the way through is like really really good and it really gives kind of the assistant yeah and it like it really gives the vibe of the whole thing yeah like i say just just kind of amused by it really it's the most prog thing i've ever heard in my life oh very interesting okay yeah without a question and and this is where the rage came in because it was i felt like (laughs) the the unadulterated (laughs) rage okay i'm famous for my rage as as well you know but yeah, I just I just felt you know like these songs are actually like really good, like getting getting some really catchy stuff going on as well as being really interesting, and then they've handed the lyric writing over to like a primary school child. So, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, like it it really did feel like I, this was something you know one of, one of my mates' kids has written. Yeah. Okay. No. I'll <laughs> and it it was just making me quite just frustrated you know and and i i know this this is this is part of the genre and everything but it really did make me quite frustrated and then upon second listening i could i could find the humor in it and I, you could I, relax i chilled out <laughs> and i got to enjoy it and so you know that was just my first impression i did you know i did come to quite quite enjoy it you know we look at the the songs 
individually, then you know there's a lot to be said for each song. But but as as a whole, yeah. it is the most prog thing I've ever heard in my life. In fact, I've been watching this um, this TV show called F is for Family. It's um, stand-up Bill Burr wrote it, and there's a character in that called um, Kevin Murphy, who's who's like this dropout teenager who's pretty useless. And his least redeeming feature is that he's this massive prog fan. And his favourite band is called The Shire of Frodo. And it's clearly this band that they've based it on. <laughs> it's clearly based on this band. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I thought, that was, I thought that was interesting having watched that show. And then I heard this, I was like, this is exactly what they're on about. Fair, so we've got, a, we've got an Ed boiling, <laughs> boiling in his ice fortress. Never happens. Boiling over with rage. Again, like it or lump it, I'd say that's the defining feature, probably one of the two really defining features of the Canterbury scene is their sense of humor, if you want to call it that. And the rest of Caravan's discography is just littered with with puns and like pubescent humor and all that sort of Mm. stuff. I, I thought this album was probably the least bad in that in that sense, just because it was mostly fantasy couplets <laughs> like it's not complicated lyrics it's kind of just foolish lyrics and it's not puns or jokes or anything it's kind of just little stories almost Sid Barrett style stories hmm. but I could see how this would make you absolutely boil with rage <laughs> they are not songs about anything yeah I think deep down it's just it's just very English yeah and it's you know very southern English as well so it's very much a scene that I do not identify with. But but like I say, that's just my first impression. After listening to it again, you know, I could see I could see the humour in it and I and I you know, I did enjoy it. And and yeah, like the songs are bouncing around in my head afterwards. So it's it's obviously good. <laughs> so Pi Hastings mm. and um Richard Sinclair, who are the two lead songwriters and lead vocalists, I think do have a pretty good way with a tune. Like, I actually think these are about as catchy as anything, say, the Beatles would come up with. Yeah. And then I think the band itself is musically quite talented. But no, I'll absolutely give you that these are interesting lyrics. When you say like they're, they're very good with a tune, yes. Like, they're, they're actually really good singers. I can't tell you who's doing what, when, but the um, the last song... Song, I want to call it a song. <laughs> there is yep. there is a song in there, but... When you first take that in, you think, oh, this is just some extended kind of jam. And then as you just relax and let it wash over, you realise that it's clearly has been, you know, choreographed. There's nothing jammed out about that, you know, that's really tight with the bass and everything. And then when the vocals do come in, they're in perfect sync with the organ sound. So, yeah. so like like you say, talk about being good with a tune, good with a melody. It's really, really in sync. And for it to be in sync... You know, ten minutes into this twenty twenty-five minute organ medley, it's um, it's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty well written stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, I think probably the biggest appeal for me of this band, um, on a spiritual level, is having played in many, many, many a high school and and university band in my time. This feels like music that I could have played with a band, and definitely I could have written with a band. I guess unlike ELP or Yes or King Crimson, which feel completely unattainable, this feels like you could have been four folks kind of just going into the garage and coming up with this. And that undersells them because they are really fantastic musicians and really catchy songwriters. But it feels attainable in the way that the other mainstream prog people just don't. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe if I listen to it more, I might think differently. But I, I, I almost feel the opposite. You know, when listening to King Crimson, it's, it feels a little bit more... You know, it feels like they're just making stuff up on the spot. Yeah. Whereas this feels like every note has been planned out. And and when you hear the... Is it is it the, the, the keyboard player and the, the bassist? Are they brothers? Uh, yeah, Dave Sinclair is the keyboard and Richard is the bassist. Right, OK. I just I just was quite amazed by, like, how, how tightly together those two are. You yeah. know, regardless what's going on, the whole rhythm section is just, like... It's, it's just there. Every note is bang on. It's solid. Oh, yeah. I mean, Richard Coughlin on drums. And and when, when you compare that to something like King Crimson, it just it, this just feels more just more planned. It just feels more thoughtful. I think that's what I'm responding to mm. in so much as I think if I was in a high school band, yeah. 
I don't think I could uh, have long avant-garde jazz solos. I think it would be careful, careful, careful deliberation <laughs> to create the most prog thing I could and then play it. And I think that's what this, I guess I respond to in this. Yeah. I, th- and I, I think that kind of highlights you as a musician and me as a musician <laughs> in how we're different in that, you know, you, you do plan everything <laughs> that you're playing, oh, yeah. you know, to the... Whereas I, I can't do that. I have to sort of jam into it and then figure that stuff out later. So this sort of thing, I would find much, much harder to, to produce myself. Uh, yeah, no, and I was going to say, and then this is exactly the type of thing I would come up with. <laughs> That's interesting. We're, we're really on the psychologist couch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the one other thing I'm going to flag up before we kick off the song songs. So albums one and two, they produced themselves. And they even said themselves that it was a mess and we were all playing with the faders trying to get ourselves up to like <laughs> to compete for levels. This album, they bring in outside producer David Hitchcock. And I will say that this actually felt like a really focused album, especially for the type of music it is. Like sonically, it's clean and beautiful. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good mix. You know, every instrument's just beautifully in the in the right spot. You know, the bass and the drums, you can hear them really clearly for everything. Despite all this fuzzy organ tone, you can hear everything. Like the actual acoustic instruments have all been recorded like beautifully. Yeah. You can hear like room around them. And I might even I might even say that that also has a lot to do with how they either arranged or played the songs. As you say, like the, the rhythm section was really tight and everyone really locked in. I really got that feeling where they, they are really good at locking in a groove and then clearly soloing over it, and there's an awful lot of solos on this. Good God. <laughs> yeah, endless amounts of solos, but they, they really do lock in a, a groove and then kind of cleanly solo over mm. it. So I will say it is probably also played really cleanly. Anyways, props to David Hitchcock for the clarity of the mix or the clarity of the production. So with that, I guess we'll go into the tracks here. So we kick off with Golf Girl, and this was a song written by Richard Sinclair about his soon-to-be wife. I don't really have too much to say about this. I think it was just the, the first real simple love song that I think we will probably have touched on in this, uh, in this podcast. Like, it's a song about summer love. It's pretty poppy and pretty clean. Yeah, it's, it's kind of out of place, isn't it? At the same time... The song is out of place, but the musical composition of it is no different to the way any of the, the songs are put together. It's definitely catchy. Yeah. You can hear it bouncing around in your head after you've played it, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just kind of, it's just nice. It's just, you know, some guy's obviously feeling loved up and he's written a song about this girl. And, yeah. and it's like, it's genuine, you know. You know, you mentioned Sid Barrett before. It's got that kind of quite quaint, honest, humorous thing going on yeah and, and then also like the the kind of directness yeah it's an interesting start because i was there thinking oh the, you know as a first listen this is, <laughs> i thought okay where's this going and um it just went from here straight to it just went to middle earth didn't it yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's the most british thing i've ever heard it's the most english thing yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. <laughs> My bad. Um, yeah, the most English thing I've ever heard. It comes in contrast. Lyrically or vocally, it's a really simple, silly song. But the instrumental part is quite rich. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think they they create a really light background, like musical background, but with a lot of depth. For Richard Sinclair's vocals to float along on top of. Mm. Uh, how did you guys feel about his vocals? I... I will be honest, I can't tell the difference between him and, and Pi Hastings. I really can't either. They've got a very similar style, haven't they? Eerily similar, yeah. I couldn't tell you which one's which, but I will absolutely say, I, I mean, I know this is Richard, but I really like both of their vocals. Yeah. I think they have a real kind of melodic. It's not theatrical like Peter or Gabriel. It's not soaring like John. It's not booming like Greg Lake. I, I feel like it's just some normal guys. Yeah. And again, like it, that does grab me. I'd, I'd say it's not obviously the same quality as uh, as him, but it, it definitely reminds me of Justin Hayward in that kind of way. Mm, that that yeah. place that you put your voice in the in the head registry bit. It feels like they've listened to that. Yeah, they've been influenced by that. Uh, 
kind of the the summer of love kind of britishy yeah <laughs> i guess it is it's yeah the psychedelic club scene this sounds uh, gives me the exact picture what i would imagine as the canterbury scene oh, like you you're physically imagining yeah. the countryside or whatever yeah, it just gives me the vibe. Yeah. Yeah, mm, yeah. yeah I'd agree with that. No, I, I will say, I think it is a very fitting start to this album in so much as it's just saying, hey, this is not going to be close to the edge. This is not going to be Lark's Tongue's in Aspic. <laughs> we're, we're sitting on our golf course drinking cups of tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very different vibe. So the, uh, the vibe takes a decidedly fantastical turn and we go to winter wine i don't think this is about anything specifically it's just full to the brim of kind of D lyrics <laughs> i think this was the first song where i because they really jam it out here and this the lyrics are are fun overtly proggy make ed mad and i thought yeah this <laughs> is a song i could have written in high school like it just has that that feeling to it yeah this is the one like literally made me angry on first listen, <laughs> I was like, "What? Are you, what?" <laughs> it was just despicable. I thought, you know, like this, like I quite like the the folk rock thing, get, kind of getting into it and hearing all the flute and the background. <laughs> it's, it's really, you know, I thought this is, this is really beautiful. And then, and then they, you know, they handed over the the notepad to the to the toddler to write the lyrics, to and I just started getting angry. But like I say, I listened to it yeah. again, and you know, I, I, I chilled out and yeah. saw the funny side. But yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's, it's a great tune. It is a great tune. Yeah. I do love the, the sort of medieval vibes, and yeah. halfway through it, kind of switches gear and you get this kind of banging riff going that I, yeah. you know it just pleased the ear to that point i think they do have a way of painting a picture even if it's not a picture you enjoy <laughs> i think the only other thing i really had to say about this was this amount of sustained jamming because i think they played this pretty much live it's actually incredibly hard to do and we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about them as a live mm. band but uh, I will say mad props to them for how much jamming they were able to sustain live. And I think this probably comes from their background as avant-garde jazz nerds, which I think is explanatory of everything to do with them. It's interesting, though. I, yeah, I heard people using the word jazz to describe this style of music quite a bit. I don't hear the sort of jazz that I have in my head. The way I see jazz coming through in this because obviously i think it's jazz through like 1960s club beat rock yeah yeah Yeah. i think what they are saying when they're saying jazz is we're gonna solo for eight minutes like i think that was probably more what they say with jazz i'm scared to say that is one of my favorite can't be that scared you just said it (laughs) (laughs) not not too scared to actually say it yep yeah, so there's a contrast between soft vocal and the powerful instrumental parts, and they paint the same picture. Yeah, they've done a really good job with the instrumentals, kind of complementing the fantastical lyrics. Yeah, yeah but this is a vocal is so soft. Yeah, I, I will say, like, I think this is one of the more delicate vocal performances on the album. I, you know, in their way, it's almost a ballad. Almost. Almost a ballad. And it's as much of a ballad as they could do singing about fantastical lands you know to produce that vocal so it so it actually is that clearly heard through the mix is actually quite quite a good feat when you consider all that instrumentation that's going on yeah i think they do a really good job kind of having like you know they bring the the other instruments kind of down and they just have a really chilled out rhythm section and actually i will say i think maybe that's the thing i think you're talking about with the light and the dark i actually think they really do a good job of bringing it down smooth and then ramping up the tension. And we'll talk about that with some of their their longer songs, but they really do a good job, I think, of creating dynamics. When they create them well, they can really create some dynamics. When they do that with the dynamics, I think the reason it lands so well is because when they do hit you with something harder, it's always quite a catchy riff. It's not Mm. just louder and harder, like I'd imagine King Crimson to do. It's yeah. it's it's a really catchy riff. It's it's almost like a there's elements of kind of like sixties pop in there. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that the tension between wanting to just endlessly jam and also really, really, really wanting to make a catchy song is kind of crucial to the whole Canterbury 
scene, I think. Yeah, it does feel like they're trying to write hits here. They're not yeah. just milking their egos. They're trying to write hit songs. And I think, like, I, I want to say it was Robert Wyatt. So leader and drummer of Soft Machine and then just all around, like, kind of prog mensch. He's, you know, a big shot in the Canterbury scene. And I think that's something he talked about is all they wanted to do was write 60s pop songs. Right. But then he said, when you've heard, like, the avant-garde jazz, you can't unhear it. And I was like, no, I think that's a pretty fair thing, because I think this is something that tortured me my whole life, is wanting to just write a normal song. But certainly when I was a teenager, being polluted with Yes and King Crimson and stuff. Is, is that how you see it? You've been polluted. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I just wanted to write, like, a, a sweet, like, Black Keys, you know, riff, crunchy, just good-time rock song. And then every time, when I was a teenager, every time, I'm like, well, I need to add, like, a drum solo. yeah. <laughs> So yeah, no, I was I was haunted by this, so uh, that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess uh, pointing then to their love of of pop song goodness, the next song is "Love to Love You," and so this one's written by their second vocalist, Pi Hastings, who had used up all of his songs on their first two albums. So this is his only contribution to this album. Again, it's just a song, really just about like hanging out and being in love. Again, just these really Nice, simple, simple themes done simply. There we go. Yeah, I thought it's a Beatles song. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a very, like, a very, very good point. Like, I think, again, they just want to write that three-minute pop song, and then they just fail over and over. Yeah, it's a jingle. And then <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd quite like to hear the, um, the previous album, if it's got more of Hastings on there. Yeah, I really like this one. I, I was going to say, so it was uh, for this podcast I, I had to pick between kind of this album and then the two surrounding it so i will say to everyone all three are worth your time i just picked one to say hey look mm. but unlike the other bands on this podcast i'd say a defining feature of caravan was that i don't want to say they never changed but they never changed like the album right before this and the album right after this are more of the same and we'll talk about the good and the bad about that. <laughs> but yeah, in, in general, this is definitely a much more straightforward pop style song, isn't it? Not necessarily where I thought the album would go next after <laughs> after the previous song. Uh, so yeah, no, yeah. it's it's nice, and it, as as an album, it actually it's quite an easy listen for that regard. You know, when the rage is subsided. Yeah. <laughs> So we come to the title track then, In the Land of Grey and Pink. Now, I never saw why it's called The Land of Grey and Pink. I think it was just because they wanted to rhyme it with the next line. But I feel like this song is so great as a calling card for the album. I think it walks that line between kind of a little bit complicated and a little bit easy and fun, which I think kind of keeps it interesting. I will say for, for all of this album's simple, hummable melodies and simplicity and whatnot, I do personally think it's a pretty interesting album. Like, I never just feel like I'm zoning mm. out. I just, yeah, just, I just love the sound of the organ. It's, it's got a kind of like fuzzy tone to it, isn't it? Yeah. I'm wondering, is he using some sort of guitar gear? I think it sounds like he's using pedals. Yeah, like, I, I know in the next song you, you can hear he's, he's playing it for a wah pedal or the guitar is somehow playing the same notes. I literally don't know what's going on. But in this one, yeah, it's, it's all about that organ sound. It's just using a Hammond, but the he's playing it through something to give it that kind of rasp. I yeah. definitely thought he was. It, like, it's so, so zhuzhy. Like, it's got that... It really is a cool sound. And, yeah. like, I, th- I guess this is kind of what's interesting about if you put your head back in time when this album came out, people are almost sort of demonstrating, oh, look at this new sound that I can get when I do this. You know, if, if you had grown up listening to pop songs in the 60s, yeah, they're great songs, but you don't hear these noises. <laughs> yeah, new sounds. Yeah, and and you really do have to listen to this this sort of album with that in mind. You've got to think to yourself, what had I actually heard before this? Yeah, and I think that's what makes it actually quite exciting. You know, these these crunchy sort of vibes. Yeah, you can hear guitarists doing that sort of thing, but organ players. What's going on there? Yeah, I'm surprised I never heard this again, hmm. as in this kind of really guitar-y, noodly organ jamming. 
I just, oh, I love it so much. But then again, are we being tricked there? Is there like the guitar and the organ playing together? Is there something else happening? I don't know. I don't know. So we'll talk about this when we get to the live stuff, but you can really hear the organ loud and clear. Right, okay. And, and it duels with the guitar, so <laughs> we know that they're two different instruments. Guys, <laughs> said um, practically whatever feel as well. Is, um, I want to complain about the lyrics. <laughs> This one you're going to complain about. The <laughs> it's made it to the album title. Yeah, it is. It is possible to complain about lyrics on all of these songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So talk to me about the lyrics. It's so silly. Instrumentally, it's a great piece. But the lyrics are stupid. Yeah. Why do they sing about smoke punk weed until they bleed? <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I was going to say, so there is a gargling solo in this song. If you thought we weren't going to talk about the gargling solo. And I was like, <laughs> what What could this be? Like, what, what could be happening here? And I, I just kind of taken it as read. I was like, yeah, I guess there's going to be a, a gargling solo. But he does say, we'll wash our teeth in the sea. And then has a gargling solo. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> Fair play to him. That's That's quite creative to me it sounds like people trying to write a song where it appears that they're influenced by smoking weed but they've never smoked weed <laughs> you know what i mean sure and like the gaggling solos like you know that's a bong or something <laughs> okay yeah i don't know but but that that's what kind of comes to mind this is yeah like they're trying to give you the impression that you know they they're using drugs and that's somehow making them creative but it also sounds like someone who's never taken drugs talking about taking drugs sure but it also could be talking about lord of the ring stuff again that's what the the punk weed could be you know <laughs> yeah I, I i was gonna say my honest feeling about this is i i really get the feeling that they just played mad libs <laughs> like i think that they had fantastic melodies and then they're like, we just need to get a song. Like, we just need to finish a song. And they just played Mad Libs and kind of chucked these lyrics together. For instance, I don't think Richard Sinclair's wife is named Pat. I think they needed something to rhyme with sat under a tree. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that going on. And, and I get this is kind of what made me kind of a bit, bit angry when I was listening to it the first time, is that it, it just feels like a shame. When you have such good music, yeah, that was was really close to making me cringe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got these songs that are so great, and then, well, these pieces of music that are so great, and then you throw these despicable lyrics in there, and it's it's ruined it. But then again, you know, the, the, there's a whole genre in itself that's created out of this type of lyric writing, and people love it. So who am I to say that I don't enjoy it? But it's it's just a first response to hearing that. At the very end, I'll do a poetic reading of a uh, of a matching mole song from this <laughs> scene, and we'll we'll get some we'll get some lyrics. Okay. I've got two more points about the song here, and the the first one is: Do you, in your heart of hearts, think that this is where Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd would have gone if Sid Barrett had had stayed in Pink Floyd? I'll say been able to stay in Pink Floyd because Pink Floyd was never Yes or Genesis on the crazy musicianship and mystical lyrics thing, I actually think they had a lot more humor and endless noodling in mm. them. And this honestly, to me, sounds like what Pink Floyd would have been doing four years later had Sid Barrett stayed in the band. I agree and disagree in that sentiment. There is an accidental Sid Barrett vibe coming through here, but I feel with Sid, there was like a, a more coherent narrative developed by him and then the music complemented that. But here I feel like we have music and then we're trying to fill the gaps. It's not something that's as well thought out. There's definitely a vibe thing that is reminiscent. Yeah. Definitely. Like I say, I think that's kind of an accidental thing. You know, and, and I say this with all of the love for Sid Barrett in the world. Do you really think any of these lyrics are any worse than The Gnome or even Flaming? <laughs> and, and this is the thing. I think worse, better... I just feel like there's purpose to it, you okay. know. Whether yeah. it's better or not, I, you know, to to someone outside of that man's head, it's it's hard to say. But at least there was a thought behind it, and if there's a thought behind yep. it, it's a thought that could have been articulated to the rest of the band. And the thing that they ultimately created was something that was you know, a finished 
coherent idea. Whereas I think this just feels like there's an absence between what that song means and what the music is telling us. Portrays, yeah. yeah. Whereas, yeah, the Sid Barrett era stuff, there is, you know, like, whether you get what they're talking about or not, the band understand each other and they're telling a story and they're doing it on purpose. Hmm. The only other point I was going to bring up about this song is because it's the title track, it also informed the album cover, and I have almost nothing to say about this album cover, except it's one of my favorites. This is uh, Anne-Marie Anderson and the album cover. I hope you have all seen it, but it's just a, a very, very fine pen drawing of the land of gray and pink, which is, just looks like a bunch of like gnomes huts. It's the Shire. Yeah. It's just the Shire, isn't it? And, you know, when I, was, I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned the, uh, the the caricature, was it the Shire of... Shire of Frodo was the, the joke name for the band in, in F is for Family. It's just like, yeah, that's that's where all this is, is, is heading. I'm sure I read somewhere that, yeah, the land of pink and grey was literally looking out to the, the Kent countryside in the evening when the, the sky was red and that was literally what they saw and just thought oh that sounds nice we need to get that in there i mean that sounds real lovely yeah i mean i've never been to kent kent per se but i've been to canterbury mm. and uh i don't know it's a beautiful little town yeah kent's like it's all apple orchards and sort of little rolly hills and stuff it's yeah it's nice I, wait i'll have said this in the intro it's the garden of england <laughs> yes <laughs> kent nice okay so we come to the second half of this album which is a 22 minute long suite so we're going to talk about sweets baby with nine feet underground so nine feet underground were a bunch of individual pieces written by the keyboardist dave sinclair and then threaded together jammed out as a band the title just comes from the fact that he was living in a basement apartment nine feet underground nothing specifically magical about it and i i will say i could see that being an annoyance it feels like they don't take it seriously, so why should you? <laughs> now, I, I kind of love that feeling sometimes, but they, they have a lot of like joke titles and um, throwaway lyrics and all that sort of stuff. And I think this is divided into eight parts, and pretty much all of the parts have a joke title. <laughs> so I'll ask you what your thoughts are about this, and then I've got a lot of thoughts, because I love long songs. I try to dissect them, because there are eight pieces. And I Googled all of their names. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so the first one is called Nigel Blows a Tune. I thought Nigel is the one that plays the horns, but it's just, it's, it's a cool jam. And it flows on naturally to the, the part with lyrics. I've got nothing to complain about lyrics. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then comes Dance of the Seven Paper Hankies. Hold Granddad. <laughs> By the nose. Um, <laughs> honest, I did. So these four parts were just blur. The story behind Honest, I did is uh, basically that he did his solo in one take. And that was his response is Honest, I did. Oh, cute. Yeah. And then the, the seventh part, again, with the lyrics is called Disassociation. I think it started to get a bit more sophisticated to pair with the whimsical, beautiful instrument part. It almost ended on a melancholic note, but then it blew up again with 100% proof. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, it just buffed it up, the whole thing. So I didn't really listen to it in separate parts. Like I just let the whole thing just flow over me. And the way they brought these separate sections together was so smooth they're so smooth like as, you know as a, as a producer that uh, at that time you know they they nailed that like the the balance of the volumes and everything it's it's really really good just just musically as well you know you you keep saying like it's like a jam it's like it doesn't feel like a jam it feels like it's so cleverly thought out it's written down it's it's yeah when when you say jam i think of people kind of making things up in the moment and it's it's not, that's not what's happening here, and you can hear that with the the way the bass and the, the the drums and everything are all they're just there on the note at the right time, and they're in perfect sync with each other. Now, is that just that they know each other's movements so well? I don't know, but it really feels like it's been, you know, very cleverly put together. So they've been playing most of them in some fashion together since like 1964, right? <laughs> 
and playing live in the club scene. So it's like I just I do imagine that they've almost got that that telekinesis. Yeah, it's it's super tight either way. You know, however they've done it, it's it's super tight. Just in general, the, the number of sounds that you're hearing. That's the thing I love the most about you know all the the keyboards at the at this time. Like they've all got these unique voices. Yeah. We're not hearing a lot of different keyboards here. There's there's probably about three or four over all these different sections. But you said there's eight sections here. Yeah. But it's almost like he's like here's this one. Okay. Check out this sound that I can make it do. Check out this sound I can make it do. You know, pulling the, using the pull bars on the the Hammond as he's playing, you know, bending the notes. Again, you're hearing the the wah in sections again. And it just they're just all flowing into each other beautifully, and I actually really really enjoyed listening to this. I just you know just being able to just let it flow over me, and then when the vocals do come in again, the the melodies beautifully in sync with the keyboard part. It's not like yeah. it doesn't sound like someone's making this up on the spot. That that is a well crafted piece of melody, just 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 part of it. I think the smoothness you are both responding to is. Probably from the fact that they strung together all of these pieces, and then they played it live for 22 minutes. And uh, this is similar to Adam Hart Mother, so Pink Floyd's 20-minute-long suite from 1970. Uh, the band, at least the basic backing tracks, the band played live for 20 minutes. And I think that really gives it that feeling of it's a song you can play live. Oh. Obviously, Yes would go on to play Close to the Edge live, but that was a song that was stitched together Frankenstein style. <laughs> this is a song that they strung together. So I am a long song enthusiast, a long song connoisseur, if you will. I can't get enough of them. I, I am primed to love them. I think my favorite song from every band is always their longest song. So like my favorite door song is the end. My favorite Zeppelin song will probably be in my time of dying or no quarter. Like I just am primed to love the longer songs. So it broke my heart when this otherwise pleasant album that caused me no rage whatsoever kind of ended for me on this dud. And I was like, what was the dudness I was hearing? Cause it's a pretty smooth song. There's some riffs, the singing is pleasant, but it got me thinking what makes a long song good. And the simple word for me is dynamics. And this song, the reason I guess I think of it as a jam, is for me it kind of just jams and jams and jams. And I think the, the crowning jewel of long songs, so I'm thinking here of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, or Close to the Edge, have a part that starts, and then a swell, and then a come down, and then a groove, and then another swell, and another come down. And I could, I could tell you what the parts were. Mm. This had eight parts but they were like okay and now now a keyboard solo and now a keyboard solo yeah it's it's like it's yes you are hearing lots of different sounds but they're all different types of really intense organ sound yeah and yes like that is dynamic but it's not the type of dynamic that you hear in a whole band playing dynamically together this is just one guy's expression isn't it i mean he's kind of he's changing the sounds but the song yeah. isn't changing to yeah. me and uh, like I, you know obviously you can hear different riffs and and the lyrics come in and all that sort of stuff but i i, I don't feel like the song changed yeah like the intensity seems to stay the same all the way through doesn't it yeah yeah like it's a six it's just a nice six the whole time no, and then I think the other thing that the song kind of suffers from, and this is going to be real rich coming from me, who who loves 20-minute songs with lots of solos, I feel like I always connect most to singing. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I think this is most people most of the time. I think I connect most to singing. So I like my solos in between a bit of singing rather than my singing in between a bit of solos. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, which is exactly what this is, isn't it? Yeah. It's not a 20-minute song. It's a 20-minute solo, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, if, if you're looking at that last piece as a song and you're you're hoping for this, this long piece to have these beautiful dynamics and stuff, then, yeah, I guess it is a dud. But, I don't know, when I was listening to it, I really enjoyed it. I just I felt... I just loved those different sounds. So it was just a joy to my ears to hear all these different organ tones. And I think that part of that is that I am actually just going through a phase of really enjoying 
keyboards at the moment. So I uh, so yeah. I my ears are like primed to hear these different tones and be like, Oh, what's he doing there? What's he doing there? So I'm listening to it and enjoying it for all the wrong reasons. Shame on you, Ed. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> I think critically it's that whole blowing smoke up your own ass thing, isn't it? That's yeah. going on here, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I'm the one blowing the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Much as I have just insulted them, I don't want to spit in the face of the song. It's a very, very pleasant song. I, I wasn't pulling my hair out like it's 22 minutes. It goes by smooth. There's some good singing, some good playing. But they have long songs with outrageously good dynamics in them. So I don't know when I first heard this album, but I fell in love with Caravan from their compilation, uh, The Show of Our Lives, which collected their songs between, I think, 1971 and 1975, but basically all the times they played live on BBC. And it's a fantastic live compilation. In fact, I've avoided live compilations for this podcast in general. I'm going to shout this one out because it's amazing. But included in this compilation are two lengthy, lengthy songs called For Richard and A Hunting We Shall Go. And both of them are so good, so jam-packed with dynamics, have all of the keyboard that Ed has just been gushing about, and include, as of I think 1972 or 73, include their viola player, Jeffrey Richardson. And man, like the inclusion of a viola, love it. And then him soloing together with Dave Sinclair and Richard on keyboards and and guitar just it's another level i I think they really reached that dynamic peak that i was i knew they had in them but yeah when they when they i don't know if it's a duel if there's three of them but towards the back half of four richard they all have a a a jam off and they're trading licks and i i about lost my mind (laughs) so this song has a subtitle called um can't be alone now yeah uh, I wasn't expecting 15 minutes. <laughs> well, again, that's them and their stupid jokes. So <laughs> what Meg is referring to is that For Richard's recorded album title was Can't Be Long Now. So again, jokes, yeah. just uh, bits. <laughs> yes, it surprised me how thick it sounds. This is played live because in my head, my impression of Caravan is a small scale band. One instrument, one set, one pedal. Yeah, simplistic. I think this whole live album is uh, more... (laughs) Probably down to two things that we've talked about is the use of pedals, because I also think the viola player was using pedals. So you've got guitar, viola, and keys all pedaled or really grittily amped. And then I also think the rhythm section locking in. So I'm going to give my mad, mad props to Richard Coughlin, the drummer here. I think the the rhythm section just goes nuts and it really performs those quick turns through the sections really well. So you get that really like light dancing feel, but with the, the heaviness of really intricate playing. So the only other one I'm gonna shout out from this live album is The Show of Our Lives. And it's it's just it's a great song. It ends it beautifully, and it's a lot more real and less jokey than their songs have been thus far. And and I just love their their interesting melodies. And I think this is, for me, just the, the song that comes together as a pop song should with good lyrics, good melodies, and good playing. So that's all I've got to say about that. Oh, I thought this is a Caravan's Queen moment. Yeah, it's got the Queen, like, lighter up in the air moment. Mm. But uh, that was not their lot to be that, <laughs> that, <laughs> that popular of a band. No, it's nice for a change very different from what we were listening before and this one really brings up Pi's voice yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. his voice is fantastic just this one it it's it's more solid than whimsical and as you say it comes out really thick live Mm. so we'll we'll end here about caravan so the gents over at the progressive palaver some other very very good podcast make a point about Pink Floyd, that they're on a really, really straight trajectory. Like, they start with metal, and just every album they build and build and build in a pretty straight line. And I always think about kind of that rubric for for bands, where I think, like, yes, jumped around a lot, 
album to album. Like, I wouldn't have said there's a direct line. You know, Genesis has a really obvious split between Peter and Phil, and ELP burned bright and fast, etc. I think Caravan is interesting. They did this album. They have an album before and an album after, and then another album after. Actually, two more, three albums after. If you liked this, I don't want to dunk on them, but pretty much every single album is roughly the same. This probably is the most, like, where things came together the most. But every album is some jamming, some goofy lyrics, and some good instrumentals. And they, they never seem to go bigger or get better in any artistic development way. I think their last album of the 70s is called uh, Cunning Stunts. So they, they didn't grow up. <laughs> um, yeah, I like this as an album of, of kind of lazing in a... A summer forest, no ambitions. <laughs> that is interesting because if I think of this album as coming out in 1970, I still think this sounds not ahead of its time, but it sounds it sounds like a, a quality album of that of that time, very well produced. That yeah. you know they are they are pushing some boundaries with the the playing and the, the way they they mess around with the sound of the the keyboards and stuff. But if you're going to stay there and not change i think yeah that's that's a little disappointing it's a little disappointing but that you know this is clearly who they are yeah this is clearly who they are a, you know a big part of you know people like pink floyd is not just them it's 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 everything around them you know pink floyd were recording you know in abbey road yeah they had the beatles next door doing sergeant pepper that's a different world isn't it you're going to be exposed to, you know, completely different technology and that's going to push you in different ways. If you don't have that outside influence pushing you in new territory, you're going to remain who you are, aren't you? I mean, I also think the other really big thing that kept Pink Floyd probably in a a state of forward momentum is metal was kind of like a, a... Pretty big hit. And then Dark Side's like the biggest album of the 70s and probably, you know, one of the biggest albums of all time. And then suddenly Pink Floyd are a massive stadium act. Because I was going to say, I think the the early 70s, as I alluded to, their early 70s stuff, even without Sid there, it still had kind of this, like, bucolic hanging out in the countryside, a little bit of psychedelic jam, some goofy lyrics. And then it was suddenly they hit something, they hit some vein of gold with Dark Side. And then they have to deal with what they feel about that and what people feel mm. about them. And, you know, like their next albums are straight away dealing with the world. Like, you know, this is, as you say, written by a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> and and to that point, I think it's, you know, Le Innocence, where they're hanging out in the countryside. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think Pink Floyd's dealing with, like, fame, then dealing with politics, then dealing with fame and loss and everything on the wall they're working through their their stuff out in the open. Yeah. I think Caravan, uh, spoiler alert, this album didn't do anything commercially. It's just become a cult hit. And that's it. I think that's where Caravan stayed, yeah. as, as a beloved Canterbury rock underground band. To go back to the whole outside influence thing, Caravan to Pink Floyd is, is pretty unfair. But... <laughs> You know, if for this album, you've got the producer who's kind of brought them into into the studio. It's kind of, you know, he's found this this band and he's he's kind of championed them and he's been why they've been signed to a label. It's almost like this album's his baby. Yeah. Whereas Pink Floyd, they're already recognised and then they're going to Abbey Road, and then you know, like when you look at the technology that they have as a band. They're not using particularly yeah. different equipment, but the studio is opening its doors. It's using its skills in engineers. For example, the guitar setup hasn't really changed since Sid was in the band, yet the album sounds completely different, and you're hearing all these amazing sounds. It's like, what's going on there? But it's, it's all this additional outside help. And having a band that's open to that, not having a band that's got a keyboard player who's literally nine feet underground like in his room yeah yeah it's it's like it feels siloed it's that guy's mind and no one else is allowed in <laughs> and and you're not going to develop that way are you yeah honestly it's the lyrics <laughs> you know like it's the content of all of this and, and uh, you know as i had just talked about like i think pink floyd really started to look inwards and outwards and upwards and downwards and all that sort of stuff i think caravan just kept singing about whatever because 
to me, there's not a massive difference with musicianship or really compositional ability or anything. I think it's probably, as Ed alluded to, the outside influences, like as in studio producer type of stuff. And then I guess I'd throw in a, a lyric slash spiritual content. Yeah, yeah. As people take themselves seriously at all, um, is. Yeah is always welcome. You know, I don't mind people who take their music seriously and don't take themselves seriously. You know, that that's that's fine. But this is just this this lack of taking the actual important content seriously just it just seems to grate on me. <laughs> yeah, and it's, so it's funny obviously I, I as I've said many times, I easily digest this album. And I, I'd say my grand takeaway for Caravan is they're the most pleasant band of this scene. And I say they stay at a good six the whole time. And I think they they can never be the 10 or 11 that Yes and Pink Floyd are. Like, they can never get there for me because the ambition just isn't there in that sense. And that's fine. Like, I'm happy to go on a vacation to the countryside and listen to these guys. That's, that's the feeling they give mm. me. And then I'll come back and have my mind melted with some, some Yes or some Pink Floyd. Yeah, I can get down with that. I was very much entertained... Definitely by this. I will listen to it again, definitely. And and that's, I guess, my message for everyone out there is dig deep into Caravan if you enjoyed this album. They all sound just as good. <laughs> thank you, guys, for joining me. Pleasure is mine. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and again, uh, thank you for asking me to listen to an album I've not heard before and, you know, have the opportunity to, to let that bounce around in my ears. And, yeah, enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. So, that was Caravans in the Land of Grey and Pink. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at progfrogpod. And if you have any longer thoughts, queries, questions, feel free to email at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. I want to thank both my guests, Meng and Ed, and I have been your host, Ian Prize. So this album has become a, a cult favorite, but it obviously didn't turn Caravan into a giant stadium act. Recording costs had run over so much that the band didn't get much promotion. But this band would remain beloved on the underground scene, and this album has become a cult favorite. So, the acetate was just dry on Prague's most relaxing album, but a young supergroup knew exactly what Prague needed. More notes. Join us next week for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Palmer.